Hello, and welcome to the Spirit Studios podcast. My name's Al, and in this episode, I'm co-hosting with fellow Spirit Studios tutor, David Cameron Pride. We're joined by very special guest, Scott McLachlan, who is the director of A&R at Warner Music Australasia and is based in Auckland, New Zealand. Originally from the UK, Scott spent 20 years in the music industry over here before moving down under and working at Universal Music New Zealand. While at Universal, Scott discovered Lord, signing her to a development deal which led to the global hit Royals from her first album, Pure Heroin. In this episode, Scott tells us all about that process, what it's like working and touring with some of the world's biggest artists, and shares his insights and advice for those looking to make a name in the music industry. We've got a very esteemed guest today, and we've actually tried to go as far as we can from the UK to find somebody. And we found a fellow Brit. We've got Scott McLachlan joining us from uh, New Zealand. Scott is the director of A&R at Warner's New Zealand. Is that correct, Scott? Yeah, that's right. Brilliant. And uh, thanks for joining us, Scott. I know you've dug a little bit into your evening time with the time difference tonight, mate. Yeah, that's no problem. I, I tend to lead quite a nocturnal life. <laughs> yes. Um, or I have done in the past when when dealing with US and the UK. So it, uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, this is very easy for me. Used to it. Brilliant. Uh, me and Scott, just to let our listeners know, me and Scott actually go back a long way because I did start um, when you were back in London, Scott, working for Zomba Records in the days of Britney and Justin Timberlake, was it Backstreet Boys and all that stuff? Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. And... That's it. Yep. Yeah, the glory yep. days. And I was Amazing. actually one of your in-house producers at the time and we've sort of stayed in such since. And you've gone on That's to right. Universal since then. You you were at and we did a bit of work together then and now you've moved back yep. over to New Zealand with your wife and family. Is that right? That's right. I've been here for um, for 12 years now. Yeah, I, I, I worked at Universal just before I came here in the UK. Then I worked again at Universal when I arrived here, then took seven or eight years out to do management. And then I'm back into corporate world for one last trip around the sun. Your last hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, just to give everyone a little bit of background. So Scott started off in dance music at first. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I mean, uh, not but partly because it was sort of, culturally what was very important what was going on so uh that was kind of my day-to-day life going to raves and clubs and stuff and so it was a natural sort of progression into working you know uh, starting work at a label and then signing dance music so yeah did that for the first six or seven years yeah and did did well with that and then i think you started working with acts like um groove armada was one of your big acts back in the day yeah um, Groove Armada and essentially uh, my, I think my skill set certainly in my early days was more about recognising sort of one-off dance hits um, rather than more, so so it wasn't you know we sort of bandied the, the, the word A&R around or the term A&R around I couldn't really say I was an A&R man at that stage because I was just spotting hits paying a fair amount of cash for them and and then putting them out on a label and you know, at Jive, we had a couple of um, number ones with Shanks and Bigfoot Sweet Like Chocolate and oh, the Tampera, Feel It. Yeah. Um, but they weren't, you know, those were just, it was essentially picking up, you know, hits really. It, there wasn't, you know, what I do, I've done in the sort of latter half of, half of my professional life is, is, is sort of 
artist development, which is really what A&R is. It's, it's yeah. finding a, you know, the talent and then building together with the, that sort of creative force something that, that, that sustains a career. A lot of those dance records I signed didn't become career artists. They were just sort of burned very brightly, but for, very, for a very short time. So, yeah, so you kind of get bored with that. Slightly different skill. You, you still got to be able to spot a hit though, you know? Yeah, and I think actually those early days um, stood me in great stead for, you know, for, for the more sort of robust A&R role a lot is being said, and we'll probably get into this. A lot is being is being hung on to, you know, data these days, and you know what the data tells you. But I'm still an instinct A and R guy. You know, if it makes me feel something, I kind of I trust my gut enough to go, well, that's probably going to be a hit. And and so those early days of of recognizing what what a hit is, and, and there's no there's no science to it. I wouldn't say it's more really just seeing what what pushes people's buttons and I've I've sort of my taste I guess is that or my professional taste is that if it presses my buttons I have pretty a mainstream taste it's probably going to press a lot of other people's buttons and that's really what the game's about well that's really refreshing because it after, at the end of the day it's a human medium it's human beings making emotive art and yeah. it's nice to see that it's still getting judged by human beings reflecting on emotive art and not just yeah. number crunching there's going to be an element of that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that there's always a desire because exactly as you say, it's, it's very subjective art. And so it's very difficult to quantify and replicate what works and what's successful. Mm. And that's kind of the joy of it. It's the fact that, you know, you never know yeah. what's going to work. And, that, and, and, and that's kind of why we keep doing the job because it's, you know, it's like you're searching for that high all the time. But I think there is an element of the business that would rather just go, do you know what? If we discover what the, the, the chemical equation is, we'll just print up hit after hit after hit after hit. And it yeah. makes, makes it a much easier job. Uh, you know, the day that that happens, I think is the death knell of, of, of music, really, because then yeah. a lot of that sort of nuance and a lot of that, I guess, you know, almost spiritual element of it disappears because... Yeah you know, everyone's interpretation, everyone's um, consumption of music is personal. And, and if it's, if it's done, you know, in a way that, you know, in a sort of cookie cutter approach, I think we're all fucked. Yeah, completely. <laughs> and one, one of the things I did want to ask about when I first knew you, Scott, you were like one of the guys in London, one of the main A&R guys that had a really big reputation. Like yeah. you said, you've now been in New Zealand for 12 years. What have you found is the difference of the two cities and the musical approach and the way that they go about finding artists and the type of artists that come through from those countries? There's two issues in New Zealand, which I discovered very quickly. One is the tyranny of distance, which means you're yeah. so far away from everybody that culturally it's difficult to be relevant, you know, because the epicenters of music tend to be the UK and America. And so the further away you are from those places, the more difficult it is not just to be authentic, but to be, to have an impact. And so what happens is you tend to get, you know, artists being very derivative of, uh, of what's being successful elsewhere or in those two main, main territories. And so you get sort of diluted, slightly pale versions of 
of the real thing. And that that doesn't travel and it doesn't work. It can work to a certain extent here. And look, New Zealand isn't the only country that is um, that is that is beset with that problem. Um, so that's one of the problems. The other problem that they have locally is that because it's such a small country and everyone's sort of, you know, two degrees away from knowing each other, um, there is a, a syndrome called tall poppy syndrome where it's it's kind of, it's frowned upon uh, to be too ambitious and to be arrogant or there's a, there's an expectation that you are humble and there's a humility in everything that you do. And so, and that's, that's never been more um, visible than, you know, you've got the All Blacks, a, a rugby team that punches well above its weight and, and, and they sort of walk on hallowed ground here. But but are, are, and are sort of superheroes, but are very very down to earth, very approachable. You know, they don't drive big flash cars. They don't make shit loads of money. Yeah. Um, mm. Relatively a sportsman, mm. and so th- there is this problem that it's difficult to find stars. You know, that you can find artists that are, 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 have the ability, but no one wants to step forward and say. I could be the next Mick Jagger. I could be the next Freddie Mercury. I could be the next Liam Gallagher, Ian Brown, whoever. So, mm. so that's a really difficult thing. And that was a real problem when I got here. I, I had a lot of naysayers saying to me, we don't do pop music. You'll never find a pop star here because it's just not in our DNA. Wow. Yeah. And it's sort of Australasia in general, is it, that you do as well? It's, is it not just New Zealand? Yeah. And is that a kind of similar thing that you found that affects artists from Australia as well? Um, it, it is. It is. Uh, the difference is that we, we New Zealand has a population of four and a half million. Uh, Australia is a lot bigger, I think 20 million. Still very small compared to, to the UK and the US, but they can, they can sustain... Uh, themselves and so they do have a little bit there are a few more scenes that there's a better mm. live culture um uh, there's more money spent more um you know you know money spent on music so they've developed their own industry a little bit better and and there is certainly less of a concern about being humble and uh, <laughs> and, and and you know shy uh, the australians have never been known for that and yeah. and <laughs> And actually, even though we are very close neighbours, you really, culturally, they're very, very different types of people. Mm. So I think the Aussies suffer a little bit, again, from the tyranny of distance, but not so much, you know, they've got a good belief in themselves. I I lived in Australia when I was a kid. and um, Right. Yeah, you'd notice those things a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and, and, and look, you know, we don't have any animosity with the Australians at all. But there is a there's a rivalry, and and I think they've probably had a few more standard bearers of pop or rock music that have gone on previous to be very successful. Yeah, and they have a habit also. Anything that is successful in New Zealand, they tend to claim. So, Crowded House, for example, is a Kiwi band. I didn't know that. Yeah, the Australians have claimed it. Uh-huh. Um, they had obviously in excess who were global stars, yeah. ACDC, massive stars, you know. And so they've kind of been a bit shrewder and, and a little bit more, again, a little bit more forceful in claiming, you know, success for themselves. I mean, 
there's a there's an age-old argument that people will come to blows over that pavlova is actually a new zealand uh in a dessert dish but the australian <laughs> have claimed that and and so you know and and look i saw it in very real terms with with lord where they basically sort of claimed her and it was through a lot of hard work that we sort of maintain her and and her own sort of volition as well that she maintained in a straight uh, a kiwiness prior to the internet and it sort of being very glow a very global market you, your your trajectory was you'd get big in new zealand then you'd move to australia try and conquer australia then you'd go to the uk and then you'd go to the us and it was oh, that okay. route that you had to take whereas now it's like you can be in mongolia and if you've got a hit record and you put it out the world can listen to it that wasn't you know that wasn't so so that that's also been a, a real challenge so the internet in that way has been has been good for local music and just going back to the industry side of stuff i mean obviously mm. with the climate we're in as well what are the things that are affecting labels mostly at the minute recently in the last two or three weeks a lot of websites uh you know and, and they're just reporting news but i think they could do it maybe with a bit more sensitivity. All the record labels are, are, if not recording profits, certainly are not recording loss of revenue at the moment. Right. Because I think despite, of the, despite the pandemic, you know, Netflix and, and Spotify have done very well yeah. because people being confined to their houses, mm. they're going to watch films and they're going to listen to music. So there's no downturn there at all. What's I- irritating me is, you get these huge numbers plastered across the media saying, you know, Sony turn over a billion dollars in their first quarter, where that's only part of the industry. If you look at the live industry, and I know personally, you know, friends of mine that work locally, promoters, agents, uh, venues, uh, production people, their their business is completely decimated. I mean, to the point where people packing up and going home you know it's completely <laughs> fucked and and from our position as a labor i had a meeting with a, uh, uh, an artist today who said yeah i don't know if I, you know i'm not gonna be i don't know when i'm gonna be gigging anymore so i don't know how much money and and, and he said how's it how's it gonna affect my release and i said honestly it's not gonna affect your release at all because we've got plenty of other ways to get to the audience but if you're in that side of the business it's 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 dire. It's really, really bad. And and for a country like New Zealand, which relies probably 60% of all revenue uh, for, from the live sector to be coming in from abroad, it's disastrous. It's absolutely wow. disastrous. And the government's been good at helping people and subsidizing, but ultimately that's got to stop, you know? And so, you know, I think there's a responsibility within the labels to try and keep these guys going because without a live business, um, in so many intangible ways, we're going to be affected. You know, yeah. um, it's not our core business, but it's so important for bands to be able to play live. It's so important for audiences to see artists live. It's so important to have international artists come here. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a really it's a very bad situation for a sector of the industry. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think a lot of people complain about streaming. If streaming hadn't happened, the industry might have been in a very different place at the minute, the label side of things. Do you know what I mean with yeah. this pandemic? Yeah, with, with retail closing down as it yeah. did, yeah, there wouldn't have been any music sold. You know, you physically couldn't do it. Um, 
So streaming in that sense has been an absolute godsend. You know, yeah. it's 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 the genius of having everything you need in in your pocket on your phone. You know, yeah. you can just. I mean, I I now I go to the supermarket and I have a pair of iPods or AirPods, stick them in, and I'll go and do the shopping and I'll listen yeah. to music or listen to demos. Or, it's it's incredible the accessibility to music, and in that sense, mm. no wonder the labels are doing so well. It was interesting the point you made before about how streaming is actually helping artists from places like New Zealand, where um, it is a smaller country with a smaller music scene. Something like mm. streaming, it it really helps those artists reach an international audience. So that totally. as a as a format is actually helping grow the New Zealand music scene. Absolutely. I, the, the counterpoint to that is, of course. The fact that it's easier here means it's easier across the world. So mm. actually getting heard is, is a hell of a lot more difficult. But if you've got a hit, like you'll seen recently with Jason Derulo and Josh 148 or whatever his name was, that was a song that was made in a guy's bedroom in South Auckland, put it up on TikTok, and, and it exploded. He had number one all over the world. I mean, it's an incredible story um, for a young kid who has basically reached a global audience and and there's no way that would have happened in the in the previous you know global situation of of having to get signed and you know make the record and press the record and just wouldn't have happened you know it's mm-hmm. it's very much a, a song for the moment it, it reached its audience through not even a music platform tiktok which is more a visual platform you know that was the, his his way to access uh, an audience and, and 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 what an amazing story and what an amazing success are you guys still signing and a major still signing artists like they were pre-pandemic scott absolutely yeah. um I, yeah i don't think there's that stopped in any way shape or form i think if anything the directive going out is to sign more right because it it's a numbers game to be honest you know because it's much more difficult to predict trends and movements and that sort of tribalism has disappeared and fallen away. So, and I think uh, the audience is much more agnostic. They don't have to just be into R&B or into hip hop or into, you know, I see from my kids, 13, 16 years old, they will listen to, in the space of an hour, seven or eight different genres, you know, and yeah. be completely colorblind, completely uh, agnostic to what, where those records are coming from, what they're about, their style, they just, they're making a, a decision based on what their ears like and that's it. Yeah. By the same token, yeah. there's not, there's a, there's, there's a, a less of an investment in that music. It's much more uh, bite-sized and it's as if they're at the buffet and they'll have a little bit of everything um, and and they, they they don't have a preference for what, what it is. It's just what suits them at that moment. And if you come back a week later, they'll choose different things. You know, the dedication to following artists and being into music, I think has certainly been diluted. Yeah, it makes it makes a label's job a lot harder, things like that, because obviously trying to plan an artist's career and, tr- and we weren't talking about the live industry before, trying to work out how many tickets an artist might sell on the back of a popular record you don't know yep. really what loyalty you've got behind that, really, until you. There's try no it. correlation. Yeah. There's no correlation. I've seen, I've seen artists locally have number one records and struggle to get fifteen people in a room. Wow. Wow. Because because the the audience has no interest, 
has spent no time researching or investing in the artist. They like the song and that's enough. They don't go beyond that. Dave, you and I come from an era where we would pour through, you know, vinyl sleeves to see where it was recorded, who wrote it, who produced it, who mastered it, you know, and, and then vociferously track down every single format, every single song. You know, it was like, I I remember actually, I I was at college in Dundee and I saw uh, the record shop that I I used to go and shop there, Groucho's, which was there for 35 years, is closing its doors. And I remember seeing the Stone Roses debut album come out and I pre-ordered it and then that morning stood in a line to get my, my vinyl, you know. There's no fucking way my kids would do that. There's no need and there's no requirement. It's like, oh, you know, a friend of mine um, posted today, oh, new Flaming Lips album's out. And I was like, when did that come out? It came out Mm. Friday. I would never have known. There's no marketing. There's no posters. There's no interviews. There's nothing. Or there probably is, but I'm not seeing it. And so... I, by by pure virtue of luck, I've I've discovered it. I've gone and listened to it, love it. And now what I'll do is I'll go and track down the vinyl and buy that. Yeah. But, you know, I'm still old school. And, you know, and, and that's a real, I think that's a real shame because, you you know, it's a, rec- it's a quality record that the band has probably spent eight months recording and, you know, pouring. But really, no one gives a fuck. Yeah. You know, it's like, and, and, and God forbid that, you, you know, that you produce an album an important album because the audience is never going to make it through 12 tracks you know and and even i struggle with that sometimes and i think the killers had a new record out uh, which you know sort of came and went you know bob dylan has put out probably the best record of the last 20 years that he's done and there's no there's no impact date anymore so there's no there doesn't seem much fanfare there used to be a big fanfare didn't there do you know what i mean when an if yeah. someone put an album out yeah, totally. I mean, I, I saw Noel Gallagher, you know, say we were the last rock stars because the market allowed us to be. You know, nowadays, no one gives a shit. He's right there. He's totally right. He's absolutely right. I, I wonder if th- there is also some reaction to that, though. Like the resurgence in vinyl yep. might be a good example of that, where there is all, almost that active response to disconnect from from something like streaming and go back to something like vinyl, which in terms of a format, is outdated. Do you think that is something that all artists can benefit from? Or do you think that's going to mostly benefit maybe more indie artists where vinyl might have a bit more of appeal with the fan base? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, it'll appeal to, or it'll work for some, not others. Um, yeah. The indie, you know, and, and Dave will again remember this, there were very uh, strong demarcation when, when we were starting out in the industry, that there was mainstream music and there was indie. And the two rarely crossed, you know? That was kind of the holy grail that you could be like the Smiths or the Roses, where you could be essentially an indie band, even the Strokes to some extent, you know, signed to Rough Trade or signed to Creation and then cross over into big numbers and play Top of the Pops or get on Top of the Pops. That I don't believe at the present time exists anymore, but I think you're absolutely right. There is always a pendulum shift and a reactionary uh, response to anything that's happening at any one time. 
And I think the vinyl thing is a good indication that, for that, that it's actually a lifestyle choice that people will go, I'm going to buy a, 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 a piece of vinyl, which is not cheap. It's not um, uh, durable in the sense that you can scratch it. And, and I, I, need a, I need a different player to listen to it, but I'm going to invest all that time and money because I want to be in this camp, not the streaming camp. Mm. And I think that is to be encouraged. And again, there's a responsibility by labels and artists to go, no, we are going to put out a thousand vinyl to satisfy that market and grow that market. And look, all these things are, are driven by, by economics. So it's good news to see that vinyl is growing um, because it'll just, the labels will just go, well, we can make a buck there. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep pushing into that area. As to who it appeals to, or, or, or who it can work for, like Taylor Swift will do her album on vinyl, but I don't know who the fuck buys that because yeah. that audience, honestly, is a streaming audience. And, yeah. and that's to say nothing to, you know, negative about Taylor Swift. That's kind of, that's where audience is. And so I think, you know, indie bands will always try and, and, and you know, maybe cause, because they have slightly deeper roots in you know, the, 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 the history of music and they want it to be on vinyl. The unfortunate thing is because it's so expensive and their audience is probably, you know, not as big, it's, it, it's a difficult argument that always. All my artists that I've signed, the first thing they do is go, can we put an album out? Yeah. And you go, yeah, okay. And then they go, can we put it out vinyl? And it's like, yes, and we'll sell 40 and we'll get, you know, 460 back. I was thinking about Fat Freddy's Drop. Yes. I think I've seen them five times now. Right. Um, and I remember getting into them because my friends told me about them. It was a word of mouth thing a few years ago when I was at university. And, you know, they, they've put out loads of albums now. They've been going for years. And every time I've been to see them, it's been a sold out show, uh, no matter where it is. Yeah. Um, the, the longevity and their kind of consistent ability to sell out pretty big venues. Um, I think last time I saw them, it was... Victoria Warehouse in Manchester. I'm not sure of the capacity, but it's a few thousand. It's a good. It's a good spot. Do you think that's because they have been able to build up and uh, over a sort of more gradual period, develop a fan base, and I guess linking back to the vinyl thing, I've got a couple of their records that I've bought at their shows, mm. and there's something about going to see a band like that, going to a show, and then leaving with a record. That whole experience yeah. is just such like it's such a nice experience to have, and you feel very yeah. connected to the music. But Absolutely. I've gone to see other artists where I've got no interest in buying any merch at all. Um, yeah, so 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 Freddie's basically have always been staunchly uh, independent, which Kiwis love. Uh, they toured incessantly that they really earned their audience respect by traveling. They're a big band. They traveled consistently into Europe, 10 or 11 people, I think, and played essentially, and certainly initially, to, to, to expatriate Kiwis. So Freddie's are essentially the Beatles of New Zealand. You know, not, not, in, not stylistically, but you can't say a bad word about Freddie's here, you know? and you could be in in the polar ice caps, and if you're a Kiwi and the and Freddie's coming to town, you fucking go, you know. Otherwise, you get your passport revoked. And Kiwis are incredibly loyal, uh, country proud people, and they will turn out 
it's you know you might have seen Freddie's, and I, it, it, it's it's honestly you can stop any man in the road and say to them, "You seen Freddie's in your life?" and they'll go, "Yeah, eleven times." You know, it's it's literally like that, and so um, they've they've built that up, and then I think what happened was they sort of reached critical mass where where people started telling their mates, their English mates, their German mates, their Dutch mates. And then it was like almost the best kept, you know, or worst kept secret of this band from New Zealand, you know, that played sort of what we disparagingly call barbecue reggae. But, but it was cooler than that. It was funky and that. And it, people, it was a good time, you know. People would smoke weed mm. and, and get down to it. And, and they've got themselves into a position now where they can do Western Springs. They can do 60,000 people in New Zealand. I mean, wow. fucking huge. So, yeah, the, Freddy's are a very unique band. Uh, they're part of, you know, m- you know, folklore here. And I don't know if they'd be able to, you'd be able to do that sort of thing again, but they were there at the right time. They put in the hours, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as I say, I think a massive part of it is Kiwis are proud of them as a band, you know, and so... Mm-hmm. They will, they will support them wherever you go. My brother-in-law lives in Berlin. Freddie's came through last year and he went and saw them. He's 50 years old and it's like, well, of course I'm going to go see Freddie's. No, why wouldn't yeah. I? You know? And he's a Kiwi. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fantastic story. They're lovely people, very down to earth, very independent. You know, they don't do anything that they don't want to do. Their music doesn't get synced if they don't want it to get synced. You know, it's, genuinely it feels like and this is what is very much admired they're doing it for the right reasons yeah just keeping on that scott with the kiwi Mm. uh, aspects we have to mention lord because that was quite a game changer and even before i really knew you were involved with the lord thing i remember hearing that record Mm. and thinking this is one of those game changing records for me it was so unique everything was so unique the approach the sound the lyrical approach to it um can you just tell us a little bit about how that came about because it was lord an artist you'd worked with and developed over did a proper a and r sort of yeah discussing a proper a and r job i I mean i think in retrospect um yeah i could i could uh i could take the role of a svengali or guru it was much less strategic and planned than that um, I signed Ella when she was 12 off the back of a video oh. a friend of mine had sent me and she had done a talent uh, contest at school where my daughter actually goes to school now. And she did a cover version of Warwick Avenue by, Duff, uh, by Duffy. Okay. And I was like, yeah, really interesting voice. And actually the voice that you hear now is exactly the same as the voice that she had when she was 12. Wow, really? So... I signed it to a development deal for $15,000. So just to give you an indication, that's about £7,000. And I started putting her with writers. And she was working with people and it was nothing was coming out. wasn't wasn't working at all. And oh. she was still going to school and we were just developing very slowly. And then at fifth, she must have been 15. So there's three years on of trying to get a, a, a song out of her. And, and she was a very, very smart kid, but it just wasn't kind of gelling. Um, so, so there was no brilliant A&R happening. It was a lot of trial and error. And then a manager friend of mine said, I've got this producer, Joel Little, who 
was also in a, a band locally previously, started producing. He said, I think he'll be really good with Ella. So I was like, yeah, fuck it, we'll give it a go. They went in and I think it was probably the second session they were together, they wrote Royals. And wow. I, I went into the studio and he said, Ella goes, oh, I've written three songs. And she was, I was like, great. So first song was a song called Million Dollar Bills. And she was like, yeah, that's really interesting. Really, you know, not bad, pretty good. And then she goes, uh, and I've got this other song called Bravado. And I was like, blimey, that's, that's good. That's really good. I don't even know if that made that onto the album. I don't think it did. But I was like, yeah, that's really good. And then as I glanced over to Joel, sort of almost ashen-faced, he was, he was kind of shaking his hand and sort of indicating to me like, no, it's the next one you need to hear. So I was no. like, oh, you know, kind of blase, yeah, yeah, producer winding me up. She goes, I've got this other song called Royals. I was like, mm, interesting. She puts it on, got to the end of the song, and I was like, that's a global hit. It's like, <laughs> literally, that is a perfect pop song. There's nothing. And Joel was just like, that's, that's huge, right? And she was not, and she might change the story, but she wasn't aware of how big that song was. And it was, I, I remember, because I'd signed up for the world, and then the American label started fighting over who would put it out. And the label that actually took it, someone at the label who I won't name, said to me, well, this is a great demo. Who are we going to get to produce it? <laughs> and I was like, put the phone down. I was like, you are fucking shitting me, aren't you? There's, and, and, and literally, and I, uh, I don't know if I can say this, but there is a version out there that is produced, which has guitars all over it oh and God. is oh. fucking horrible. But no, see, as someone who did a bit of production and Al does production, the skeletal nature of that song is what is, makes it so haunting and wonderful. And, and, and that, I mean? that, that was the genius of it. The production was, was, I mean, it was a combination of brilliant production, understatedness, great. Uh, and the thing is, you've got to remember, and this is, this is where all the luck comes into it. There was a zeitgeist moment where at that time, Miley Cyrus was singing about uh, getting fucked up in the Hollywood Hills in a mansion, Okay. And then Ella comes along and goes, well, you know, you're singing these songs, but that's not my life. I'm trying to scrape together enough money to get the bus home. That's my yeah. fucking experience. And there is, and it, what it immediately did with kids was it divided them into two camps. Those kids that wanted to be, you know, living the, the Hollywood life and the rest of the kids going, well, that's not my life, you know. Mm -hmm. And then and Ella was smart and honest and authentic enough. And I think she single-handedly started a wave of authenticity in music where she started posting photos of herself without makeup, with spots as a 15-year-old kid and going, you know, this is what I look like. And suddenly everything that had been airbrushed and glossed, it just looked ridiculous for what it was. And kids were suddenly like empowered. And Amazing. she single-handedly did that. That was, I that. you know, I, I, my job as, because I was her A&R and became a manager, my job was to get people the fuck out of the way because she was coming through with such a clear vision and idea of who she was that my whole thing was just don't get in a fucking way. Just don't slow this down because there's, 
there's no one better on the planet than this girl to tell this story. And, and, you know, and she was, you know, and it was like when Bowie met her, Bowie said, you are the future. You know, he recognized that incredible laser sharp um, ability to touch what was happening at that time and to explain it and not be patronizing, not stand on a soapbox, just be honest and just be authentic. And, and to this day, you know, five or six years later after since that album's come out, you know, people are still trying to aspire to do that in as yeah. authentic a, a way. You know, and the, 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 to me, the, the second part of the genius was I was badgering her to come up with a title for the album, which is always difficult, you know. Well, actually, first of all, she goes, I said, well, what, what, what's the artist's name? What, what artist's name do you want to do? And she went, well, I thought this name Lord, but I want to do it with an E so that it's a bit more feminine. And I was like, well, that's fucking amazing. And so about two weeks, three weeks later, I go, look, you've got to come up with the album title. And she was really not sure. So we're sitting on a little sofa in the, in the studio and she goes, I can't say it. I'll write it down. You know, and that's yeah. just, just indicative of her as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old awkward kid. So she writes it down. She slides it across to me and I opened it and I just was like, fuck it, this genius. To call your album pure heroin with a net. It's just like, I give up, you know? It's like, you know. Do you know what it really reminded me of, Scott? Well, it reminded me of as a kid when I first heard Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush, who was also only 17 when she wrote that. Yeah. And it was just that originality, authenticity. You can tell it's all coming straight from the artist. And it was just, I just thought, this is quite game-changing. I've not heard a record like this from a young artist for a long, long time. Well, it's, and, like, it's like Weller writing Going Underground. You know, yeah. it's touching on, and probably Weller's a better example as far as lyrical content, is basically saying, this is what's happening now, but I'm a 17-year-old telling you old farts yeah. uh, and, 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 and the kids that are in the street with me exactly what's happening and doing it in such a way I mean, I think I still think going underground is fucking poetry. You know, I, 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 it's a song that I can still listen to and go, how the fuck did Weller like write that? I mean, look, another example, totally different type of record, but George Michael wrote fucking Careless Whisper at, at what, 15, 16? Yeah. You know, different wow, know. type of record, but still just, just not a word or syllable wrong, you know? And, and when you've got that, you're just like, yeah, that's it. It's it's game over. And you know yeah. it's gonna roll, you know, it's gonna go. And you know, people go, what's the what's the um, you know, oh, it must have been so hard. And honestly, Royals was the easiest record I've ever worked on because you took it to radio and they went, Yep, that's going on. No, you didn't wow. have to convince anyone because everyone, like, you right. know, uh, deaf people could hear that was a hit. Yeah. It, it, and that's what I say to, say to my artists. It's like when you've got a hit, it's the easiest path to success. It'll change everything because everyone, all the barriers which are constantly being put up, all the naysayers, all the doubt, that dissipates. It just goes away. And you just take, it, it was literally, I was taking calls every day going, oh, we got Radio 1. Oh, do you want to do Jules Holland? Uh, do you want to perform at the Grammys? Would you accept a Brit? You know, it was just, everything was just falling. And, it, and what it does, is it adds to the momentum of the project. And the thing is, 
I wrote Ella's bio, the first bio, I wrote it. And I wrote it because I refused to put her age into it. I, I, I always thought that if people then discovered she was a 15-year-old kid, it would be game over. Because not only was it brilliant, but it was written by a fucking child, you know. And I don't mean that in a patronising way. It just made it all the more awe-inspiring. So I wrote they wouldn't, they wouldn't really believe it either. They'd think that it was done by some 50-year-old guy and she was just singing and, it. And, you know? and, and very early that was the criticism. Yeah. But you just had to see Ella talk or see an interview and you realise how intelligent and smart she was. And, and so, yeah. I mean, the thing is, Scott, as well, it's not that you talk about when you've got the hit and the doors will start opening by themselves. Mm. It's not just that that was a hit record. It was a game changer. There's a lot of hit records, but Try. that was a game changer. And Absolutely. how many... In your experience, how many, how often does that come about? Something that game changing? Um, I've probably heard that three times in a in a twenty-five yeah. year old uh, year. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. And and uh, the, the only and, and I don't know if this was such a game changer, but it was a record which I heard so, uh, another A and R guy played me down the phone, and I literally. I couldn't wait for him to stop playing it because he didn't have the, you know, he had the, the the phone next to the stereo, and I was going, Ben, Ben, pick up the phone, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, because <laughs> I knew the song was a hit, and I, then yeah, I went yeah. uh, desperately tried to sign it and didn't wasn't successful, but that was a, that was crazy by Niles Barkley, oh, which yeah. was a song that I heard and was like, that's a fucking smash. Now. Yeah. I don't know if it was a game changer, but it, it still stays with me. Still haunts me that I didn't sign it, but it still stays with me that I can hear that record at any point and go, that's fucking, that's, that's a brilliant record, you know? Yeah, no, it did break a, I forget which record it was, but it was a downloads or streaming record or something. It was fastest downloads ever or something. Really? That's right, Al. You're, you're absolutely right. I think, I think it was the first record to, to hit a million downloads. Wow. Yeah, which is astronomical. Yeah. When you say downloads, you're talking like iTunes downloads. Yeah, yeah, that before streaming. Before streaming. Wow, okay. Yeah. God, I didn't think it was that long ago. It only seems like a few years old, that track. It's weird. Fifteen weird. years old, I think the track is almost. Is it? Wow. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, Scott, you so then you went on to manage Lord, yeah? Yeah. From doing what label was she signed to for the for the album? Universal, universal. It's universal. And yeah. just a question about someone who's done label stuff and management. Yeah. Um, two very different roles. Which do you prefer? Because I found that, you know, I've been a manager and I've had artists signed with yourself and um, mm -hmm. I can find the management thinking I've great rewards, but it's a little bit subservient at times, I found. For me, as for my personality, I was biting my lip a lot. Do you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. Um, what do you I, think? I, I, I have definitely, and maybe it's my own vanity and ego, but I enjoyed yeah. management more because you? you're so close to the epicenter of the success. Yeah. You're so involved in the decision making that you feel you're literally one step away from the artist and you're That's dealing true. with, like, you're dealing at, with, with, what what was great for me was that I got to deal with people who were also at the top of their game. So be it Lucian, be it Doug Morris, be it the head of Disney, you know, yeah. so you're the head of Apple at the time, Steve Savoca, you know. So basically, if 
if they wanted a, a, a film, a song of Ella's in a film, then the director would call you up. So yeah. it's effectively like Tarantino, you know, the new Tarantino, they want to use a Lord song. So they would go, so Quentin Tarantino would get on the phone and go, hey, Scott, it's Quentin. Hey, I want to use, and this is an, this is an, an actual, this is an analogy, but, but it, it, so you're dealing at that level and that's incredible. That's just for the fucking insanity of it all. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I the problem is you never switch off. So yeah. you, are, yeah. you are responsible 24 hours a day for your artist. And yeah. for a young artist who's female, it's, it, your responsibility is almost paternal. And that's, yeah. that yeah. takes its toll. You know, that's really hard. And, yeah. and because it was so big in America, it got to the point where, you know, everything was like a, 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 a military, you know, you know, everything was down to the minute. She was con const we constantly had security around us. And it was all private airlines or private planes, back doors of getting in and out of stuff. And, and all that stuff, which in, on the, on the, in the superficial is very exciting, becomes an absolute organisational headache. Yeah, so you would you would constantly be getting out of hotels, going through service lifts, and the car would pull up, and there couldn't be a delay from the door opening and the car not being there. And yes. it gets gets so stressful that if the car's late, the the manager's getting the one the one who's getting shouted at, not the driver of the fucking car. So yeah. you're getting constant batter. And then what happens is with the artist is that you're very much the mentor, building the artist up, giving the advice, getting the artist to a certain point. But then there's a switch in the relationship where the artist starts to uh, get, the, as, as, as the, the sort of information coming in, the advice comes in from all areas, because everybody wants to be part of it, the advice becomes, uh, for, you know, not, no longer singular, but, but from a group of people, and the artist starts to believe their own hype. So you then, instead of becoming a mentor, you become, like you were saying, you're essentially a servant to their needs. Yeah, you're and, battling. Yeah, and, and then it gets to a point where, not all artists, but often the artists will look at the checks they're signing for the manager, which are substantial in light of how much money they're making, and they'll go... Well, I could effect, effect, you know, essentially employ a PA for fifty grand a year yeah. instead of being paying five million a year. So maybe I should try that. And it's at that point, and it's a frequent occurrence that the manager then gets sidelined or fired, and the artist, listening to the wrong people, listening to themselves, goes off and does it themselves. And the success often doesn't get replicated because the people that are suddenly involved don't know the history, don't know the personalities, don't yeah. know the original vision. And you get, it all goes off in different areas. So I loved management, but for your mental health, I would stay the fuck away from it. I, I, that's why I asked actually, because it, it is probably the hardest job I've ever done. And especially yeah. then, and that you're talking about a solo artist, when you start trying to do it with bands as well, and you've got five personalities, and five peoples with issues, and, yep. and then infighting amongst artists as well. And you're yep. trying to keep the label happy, keep them happy, 
keep some hom- homogeny going. It's very, very mentally taxing. It is. I mean, the, the amount of managers that I know have come close to having nervous breakdowns. You know, personally, I've suffered with mental issues be, because it's just the unbearable weight and pressure from every direction. You know, so you it's about being incredibly organised. And, and God forbid you're successful with your artist because then it, mm. it multiplies 100 times. So, I, you know, our first trip, we flew into Berlin. That was we landed into Germany. Then we went and did Holland, France, and then the UK. And every territory knows they've only got the artist for a day or two, and so they want their pound of flesh. So they'll literally start you at nine in the morning and finish at seven. Then you have to go out for dinner with a label, and then you're up for a flight the next morning at five to get to the next country, and then they start again. And 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 look, you know. For Ella, it was it was grueling. But then at the end of the day, she's the artist. You know, if she wants a, 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 a ham bagel, she'll get a ham bagel. There's enough people running around to make sure that happens. But the person that is making sure the ham bagel's ready is me. And yeah. when she goes to bed, I'm still doing another three hours of calls. And so you're just like... You don't know whether you're coming or going. There's a great bit in Spinal Tap where they they fire their manager. And it's like there's a thousand things that go right that are ignored. But the one thing you get wrong, the artist will pick up on. Oh, God, yeah. And that is just soul-destroying, you know. It just kills you. And and then the label's going, you know, oh, come on. Look, and everything that the label throws at you is the most important thing to do. Come on, you've got to do this interview. And, you know, and the great... Well, I was always really grateful that Ella would tend to not do meet and greets after shows. And you'd have labels going, what do you mean you, you won't meet the managing director? And I'd be like, no, Ella doesn't do meet and greets. And I'd be getting it going, I can't believe, you know, we've been, and it's like, look, you deal with that. It's not my issue. If your ego can't deal with it, that's fine. But my artist at 15 years old needs to get some sleep. So fuck right off. So for the first two years, and I, you know, my job was to say no to things, which again in itself is really hard because, yeah. and the really good executives in the labels won't call you, won't ask for anything, won't ask for AAAs, you know, they won't. And then you'll get one call and it'll be Lucian and Lucian will go, Scott, um, this thing with Apple, I think it'd be really good if you reconsider doing this. And it wouldn't be threatening it would be the single request that Rusian would make. And I would then go to Ellen and go, we got to do this. Yeah. But then you'd have heads of labels going, where's my fucking AAA? Where's my AAA for my, you know, my neighbor's aunt. And you'd just be like, <laughs> fuck off. You know, you've got no right. And you, you, you should be smarter than that, you know? And it's at that point you, it, you see the dissemination between the people who are really fucking good executives and the ones who are in the job for their ego yeah. and what they can get, you know? And and I must say, Universal, to the T, almost every exec that I dealt with was impeccable. You know, right. Ted Cockle, who's now gone to hypnosis, he ran Virgin. Ted Cockle was fucking unbelievable. No ego, no lauding it. You know, I think I cancelled dinner with him three times with Ella. He was always gracious. He was always supportive. And it's those people that you actually, and the artist appreciates, who goes, actually, I'll do the extra bit for Ted because he's an amazing Mm. guy. Looking at the other side of that as well, me and Al were talking earlier about newer artists 
and the challenges they've got com- compared to major label artists. Um, you know, when you look at the amount of marketing money that goes into major label artists, one thing start going. Do you think there's any way that in the days of self-release and artists releasing on small labels, there's a way that they can still make an impact new fledgling artists? That's a really tough question. I think you can get noticed uh, as a bedroom artist. You know, yeah. you really can. But honestly, and I, I, you know, with Ella, I've seen this firsthand. When the machine starts to gear up and, and you get the right, and it, and it basically, it gets to the top of the tree. So whether it's Lucian or Rob Stringer, when they're invested, then what happens, you see everyone in the company globally face one way with a single purpose. And honestly, I, we, we could have probably on our own got to maybe 2 million albums and it was down to Universal and their incredible ability to execute got it to 7 million albums. So I think you can't, you can't string together a... a um, uh, a campaign as an independent of that level. No, you know, it, it's just it's a, it's it's poetry in motion. These when they push the button, it's phenomenal the way they work and the 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 way they flex their muscle, the way they get you the right stuff, the way things just happen. It's just happening at such a level that the decision makers are the other the heads of the company you know you're not going through layers and layers and layers of of middle management it's basically lucy and picking it you know the 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 phone up to tim cook and going you need to put ella on the front cover of itunes bang it happens you know that's that's like that's control that's 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 muscle you know and unfortunately if you're an independent you just don't have those relationships so I think it's really, really hard. But as I say, everyone can get noticed these days. Yeah. So the, what you should be looking at is just trying to get your head above the, the waves where people notice the quality of what you're doing. Yeah, and, and, then, and not, even, not even try to do that. Try to make the best song you can. You yeah, know, don't yeah. even, I always say to my artists, don't try and write a hit. Write, yeah, you know, yeah. having a hit is not the same as writing something great, you know. Just write something that's fucking great. And it will either get noticed or it won't. But if you're always aspiring to be great, at some point, you will get recognised. If you're yeah. constantly trying to write a hit, that's never going to happen. You might get lucky one in a hundred. But, you know, it's, it's, it's the odds. Are, I, I see pressure, you know, within labels for A&Rs going, we need a hit. We need it. They use that term. We need a hit. And it's like, no, you don't. You just need to be good. You need to be great, you know. And your artist, and, and, and it's incredible because an artist will get signed because the A&R's noticed something, and then they'll go, right, you're signed now. Go and write a hit. I'm going to, you know, and it's like, yeah. hang on a sec. Fucking, if you listen to the early Rolling Stones uh, songs, they're fucking awful. I mean, awful. So it takes time to get great, you know. The White Album was not the first album that the Beatles wrote, you know. I mean, the Beatles were amazing from the start, but, but you know, you, you, you've got to grow into it. And, and so just always aspire to be great. Don't aspire to write hits. Well, bands like R.E.M., they didn't really break into, like, the Green Album. It was the third album, I think. Fourth. Whether, whether artists like that would now be given three to three albums space to grow, I'm really unsure. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think, I think the great thing is it's a lot cheaper making records. You know, yeah. it used to be, well, you'd have to go in a studio. And, and I remember doing, actually with you, Dave, we did, um, we did some work with Kid British with Stephen yeah. Street. And I remember yeah. going, going into Olympic, which I think was two and a half grand a day. Yeah. Stephen's in there, chats away about a few things. Uh, and there's two engineers running around the studio getting everything right, you know. So I'm paying for two engineers. I'm paying Stephen per track. I'm paying for the fuckers. You're probably doing 10 grand a day there for a single 20, 30 grand. You know, whereas now, if you're spending more than 3,000 pounds on a single, you've fucking got something wrong. Because the economics are better, you could probably, you know, whittle out some uh, longevity. But then your longevity is, is very much based on your streams. And that is for everyone to see. There's no smoke and mirrors about that. It's like, right, so, you know, you, you might, as, a, as an A&R man, have to go to your MD and go, I really want to pick up the option on this artist. And he'll go, all right, hang on a sec. Let me go into Spotify and see what the streams are like. Oh, they've done 200,000 streams. That's worth about six quid to me. Fuck off. They're not getting the option, you know? And that's really tough. I think the great thing with being able to make uh, great sounding music on a budget is it does open up the music industry up to a lot of new artists. But from things that I've heard, um, it sounds like even when you get into those uh, the higher level, it's not like it's not like the Eagles record in Hotel California over three years and spending millions on it. That doesn't really exist anymore. Is that is that no. the case? No. And and what's what's been laid bare and, and which stops that? You know. Those bands got away with that. And I'm, I'm sure Coldplay don't make cheap records. Um, Ed Sheeran could, if he wanted to spend a million pounds on making his next record, no one's going to say no, you know. Yeah. But um, the idea of making really expensive records uh, and taking mm. a long time, I think just, just within the industry and, and to artists as well, it's like that doesn't make sense anymore, you know. It's, it's like if you're going to spend three years making a record, you probably you know, your moment has probably come and gone, you know. Uh, there's an expectation that you put out, it, it's almost going back to the 50s where you have to put three albums out a year to, to remain relevant. Um, and, and the other thing that I think that's been seen is that, you know, the sort of the sacred cows of the industry, yeah. who I would say at the moment are probably Ed Sheeran, Taylor Swift, yeah. you know, maybe Coldplay. But, but there's no guarantee that when they put a new record out, you too, there's no guarantee that they, those records are going to do well, you know? And um, because there's no longer that loyalty, you know, from the audience. And, and so I think people are very skeptical to spend shitloads of money on an album that may not do as well as the last one. You know, it used to be there was, there was this trajectory that, and I think you would see it, you two is a really good example that, you know, from probably from, you know, under a blood risk eye or boy, you know, it was then, you know, unforgettable fire. Just these albums were just growing and growing yeah. and getting bigger and bigger. And I think the sort of the, 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 the vision was that, well, it doesn't matter. We could fart on a record. It's still going to sell 10 million, you know, so that sort of thing. Whereas now if you two dropped a record, fucking hell, I don't know what it would sell. You know, it's kind of, so, so I think executives and, and labels and artists also are very, 
aware that look, it's not about spending lots of money and lots of time making records, you know. It's more if they know they've got something special, the money will go into the marketing. Yeah, exactly. But even that, it's like, you know, it's still a lot of money being spent on videos, but who's watching videos anymore, you know? Again, yeah. again, it used to be like Michael Jackson would drop a video and the fucking world would stop to watch it, you know? Now, no one cares, you know? I, I Three and a half minute videos too long for anyone to concentrate on. So, so where's that marketing going, you know? There's a lot of... You know, even Facebook, I, I I wonder how much is being spent on marketing, honestly, you know. Do you think the video aspect is important, though, for things like YouTube streams? How how much is it the, the track itself and how much is it the visual side of it? I think, I mean, YouTube is very much, you know, a, a, an important element of an artist's uh, growth uh, because a lot of the eyes are there. I don't know if the audience cares what they're looking at. It's more, I think people go to YouTube for the audio. Um, and if there's a lyric video or there's a video of cats, you know, skateboarding, yep. as long as the music's there, that's okay, you know? I, I don't know. I mean, every Taylor Swift video seems to cost, or looks like it costs about $4 million. And they're remarkable. You know, the thought that goes into them, the you know, the filming, and, and really, you might watch it once, and I don't think kids go back and watch it on repeat. There's no MTV. There's no, uh, you know, music TV as such that you would... And Al, you probably remember this, that you'd sit down on a Saturday morning. I mean, I, Dave and I would watch... I'm sure, Dave, you watched the chart show on a Saturday morning. All the time, you, yeah. You know, and that was that was the only place where you were getting music mm. from or, you know, that you actually saw some video. And I used to sit there and fucking record it on the, on the video, you know, so I can watch them again and again. So, yeah, I think, I, I think it, YouTube numbers are, are absolutely vital. And I think YouTube's going to become this incredible um, force, toward a force in the next two or three years. But I don't know if it's being driven by visual of the audio. Mm. You know, I think kids are going and they're seeing, watching stuff but it's, 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 again, it's that sort of, it's that smorgasbord of everything that's out there, you know? It's, you know, I, I would be saying, if I wanted to break a record now, get it onto one of the, the gaming streamers, Dr. Disrespect or something, like who's getting a million views playing Call of Duty and get him to play the fucking thing, you know? Yeah. That, to me, would be, you know, that's how I would market a record. Yeah. I mean, what what sort of stuff's coming through to you, Scott? Which, which genres do you find are being the most innovative at the minute and groundbreaking? Because um, you must be getting sent stuff all the time and stuff you spot. I am. I am. I, I honestly, I don't know if there is that much innovation going on. I, I, I'll be really honest. I feel like it's. I think people are 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 altering the the template by tiny degrees. Yeah. Because it's almost like, you know, give the audience what they want. Because there isn't such an opportunity to educate an audience anymore. It's more like it's increment, tiny increments of change or, or, or variation of the last big hit. And I think there's a real, it's really difficult to come with something totally fresh. Because radio programmers, which are, are, are terrified of programming anything different in case their advertisers switch off. 
there's no longer big TV shows that that you can you can sort of really surprise people. Even even music in syncs and films is so ubiquitous. It's like you know, like you know, I'll watch an advert and I'll be like, "Oh, that's the new Justice song." Oh, cool. Yeah, it, it doesn't doesn't move the dial for me. You know, I, I, the only area that I find really exciting, and that's uh, uh, and that's because it completely ignores the mainstream, is grime. Yeah. You know, right. I, I I feel those guys coming through are like they're authentic, they're innovative, they're taking chances, they don't give a fuck what radio says, and yeah. and they're all highly competitive with each other. There's a real fucking tribalism about it. And it's just like, I hear, like, my artist of last year was Giggs. I, I fucking loved what Giggs was doing. I don't always agree with what he's saying or the way, you know, but but I found him incredibly innovative. There's, there's, there's some local grime artists in Australia. And I went to see the gig and the place was packed out. One of the guys got stopped at the airport and wasn't allowed in, got sent straight back. One of the band. One of the band. Uh, one of the guys got um, sentenced that day in Sydney uh, for a crime, got eight years. And I went to the gig. I went on my own because it was sold out. And I, one of the, the promoters blagged me a ticket. I got in and... Every single kid in that room knew every single word that they were singing. And it wow. felt fucking, it felt like it could go off any minute. And at one point, and this is no word of a lie, a guy comes over to me uh, who was a, a gang member, like we have local gangs here, came over to me and said, hey, bro, are you undercover? And I went, no, I'm record label. And he was like, Oh, okay, and they fucking watched me for the whole game. I was shitting myself <laughs> because I clearly stood out so badly. Yeah, but yeah, honestly, yeah. it was the most. And they only paid. I think they paid paid for twenty five minutes because that's all they had. They played one song twice, and yeah. it didn't make any difference because there was so much energy in the room, and it was fucking exciting. So yeah, that's where the innovation's coming from, and. Look, I don't aspire. I'm a middle-class white, middle-aged guy. I, I don't aspire to knowing enough about the scene. But I, when I hear it, I still go, fucking hell, that's really exciting. You know, whether it's gigs, whether it's Stormzy, you know, th th there's so many. I mean, there's so many now out of the UK I see coming through. But I just, I just think, fuck, it's from the streets. It's real. It's like, you know, and it's just, it, it resonates. Even with my 13-year-old son, it resonates that, he can sing every line Stormzy says. And I'm like, mate, you're living in an affluent area in Auckland. What do you know about Stormzy and his life? And it doesn't matter. You know, it really doesn't matter. And it's what I saw Stormzy when he came here. And he said he was blown away that he'd sold the place out. And he said at one point, he said, I've got all these New Zealand kids singing back my words to me. And a yes. lot of it is colloquial and slang. And it doesn't matter. Kids have fucking learnt it. They've looked for the lyrics. They've found they're invested in it. And to me, that's like, wow, that's that's got nothing to do with marketing. That's got nothing to do with labels. That's down to the power of what he's putting out. It's that experience that that music can give you is that insight into a life that you don't know. 
but you can live vicariously through music. Agreed. It's like the same reason why like NWA and Public Enemy are like huge, you know, huge in the UK. And it's this di- it's this distant world, but it gives you this kind of look yeah. into it. And I think that resonates a lot with with kids, especially because it seems unfiltered. Yeah. And it's kind of a way to experience that and there, life. There, there is an element of rebellion to that, I think, you know? Yeah, um, for sure. You know, to me, I go back to playing or owning Nevermind the Bollocks and 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 being ecstatic that my parents were mortified I'd bought a record <laughs> that was by the Sex Pistols and said Nevermind the Bollocks on it. And to me, you know, it was an it was an opportunity to to be me, you know, to be a 12 year or 11 year no even younger, you know, and 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 I got into heavy metal. I loved ACDC, you know, because my dad would tell me to turn it down, you know, because it was offensive and it was like fucking great. You know, my daughter who's 16 took great joy last week in singing wet ass pussy to my wife, you know, and my wife was like mortified. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but it's, 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 she's doing exactly the same thing we did, you know, and thank God. So, just finally, we've got a lot of students that spirit doing the music production courses, doing the music business courses. Yep. Quite a few of the music business students are keen on working in labels, getting some label experience. Lastly, what bit of advice would you have for anyone wanting to go into that field? What do you think are the key skills and things they should focus on to help them in a, um, in a maybe possible career? Um, I think what, you know, I, 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 I think the first thing to remember and anyone who disagrees with me in the industry is a liar. Basically, everyone in this business, apart from the lawyers and the accountants who who have a uh, who have studied to learn a vocation, everybody else, the promoter, the promo guys, the marketing guys, uh, the A and R, we're all blagging it. We're all making it up as we go along. And so that I hope would give you. Uh, you know, your students some uh, uh, hope and, and confidence they can do it, whoever they are. Right. The key to me, I think, in, in starting off and it is, is to find a band or, or a song or, uh, you know, something that you, you're passionate about and then getting in with that band and, and just doing everything you can to help that band, artist, whatever, and then go to a label. So you're actually arriving with something of value, potentially. Yeah. yeah. You know, one, it gives you leverage to do, to, to you know, to, to, to advance your own career, but it also keeps you outside the organization a little bit. So you, that, that's really important in the early stages. If you, if you feel like you, you, you've just got to go and work for a, a record label, then just go and do anything. You know, just literally, I remember my first job interview, um, I said I would work for nothing, which was a really fucking stupid thing to say um, <laughs> because I ended up packing boxes for literally nothing initially. <laughs> and it was the most mundane, boring job. And, but, but I was so desperate to get in. So, so look, just leave your ego at the door, just get in and then work fucking, you know, work hard at building relationships, going out to see gigs because what will happen is you'll come across you'll, or you'll be noticed by someone at my age who I can't be asked to go to every gig, you know, three gigs a night. I can't be asked to listen to every record. If you can help me do that and you can recognize the good things, 
I'll fucking employ you. I'll help you. You know, mm. someone my age will will need someone young who's out there and probably got their ear to the street and know much more than I do about what's happening um, to make them look good. So, so make sure you're, you know, you, you're, you become indispensable by being yeah. young, by doing the things. Cause honestly, the, the greatest job I've seen ever was, was, was the kids who were A&R scouts for us. So they were basically given a car, given a phone, and given an expense uh, account. And these, honestly, the scouts were the biggest drug takers, the biggest drinkers. They stayed <laughs> up the longest. And and the, the good ones were just passionate about being out seeing bands and hanging out with bands. And they actually probably were, were the most important initial introduction to the record label because bands tended to trust them because they were their peers. They would yeah. see them out every fucking night at gigs. They would be at every gig of the certain artist and, and, and they would be the entrance uh, to, to, or the introduction to the, to the label. So, so that is, you know, and you, can, you don't need to, you know, most of the kids will probably have cars or a bus ticket or have a phone. And, you know, we'll be able to, if you go out enough, you'll be able to blag yourself into every gig you can. Yeah. And then yeah. just get a sense of what's going on. And at some point you'll come across something that you'll know is good and then go to the label and go, I've got something that you want mm. and I can help you with. And then suddenly you're in the driving seat. Don't take all the bullshit of, you know, yeah, well, we'll give you this. Or we, you know, it's like, do it, do it yourself. Do it independently. And, yeah. and, and, and that, and it's much more fun as well because you don't have a boss, really. You know, that's having a boss is yeah. the worst thing. You know, I, 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 I know I've worked my, for myself and I've worked for bosses, and and I've always had fantastic bosses, pretty much. But it still it sucks, you know. So try and do it for yourself as much as possible. And and look, you know, anyone can have a record label these days. You don't have to. All you have to do is is basically come up with a name go to company's house, register yourself for 120 pounds or whatever it is, and then start working with artists. And, you know, and you, you can, you can blag a, a deal or contract from anyone that, that basically, you know, gets them signed to you or whatever, but start something, do what Jeff Travis did at Rough Trade, do what fucking, you know, Richard Russell did at Excel, just do it yourself. And yeah. if you have some success, ultimately the labels will come to you. They'll come and either try and buy you, they'll try and JV you, but you'll at least have leverage. That's the most important thing, you know, because you'll be respected more as well. The, 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 the executives that will come for you will respect you if you have done something yourself, you know? That's great advice. Great point, Scott. Cool. Listen, thanks so much for joining us. Not at all. Cheers, Scott. Take care. See you later. Bye now. Bye-bye. So thanks again to David for co-hosting and to Scott for taking the time to speak with us all the way from New Zealand. If this conversation has got you interested in learning more about working in the music industry, then you might want to check out the Music Business and Creative Industries degree course we offer at Spirit Studios. To find all the details on this degree, as well as more information on all of our courses, then please visit us at our website at spiritstudios.ac.uk. Cheers.